do have a new candy can. Everybody saw it on the Instagram and Facebook, I assume. Yeah, if you're not friends with Maggie, I mean, you can easily find her. But also, I mean, we do post, we posted her on our our, our teaser. At this point, yes. At it's this going point. to be on the teaser. It's not yet. <laughs> not yet. Because it literally just happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you got, oh, there she is. So what is what is her name? It's Melba J. Murderface. <laughs> Because of course, because of let's, course it is. But let's explain. So Melba is because Melba sauce. Melba sauce. And I couldn't name her mozzarella and sticks. <laughs> you could have, but that was it. Just wasn't gonna that was work. Too much. It's too much. Uh, Mel- mozzarella sticks. Jay Murderface is a bit much. Yeah, Melba really made it. Really just but fits her. Melba is because Melba is the best sauce for mozzarella sticks. Correct. And only people in like upstate New York, I think, know that that's even literally. A thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know what Melba sauce is, it's literally just like raspberry preserves yeah, that, that are kind of your... melted down a little bit. Mm. And then you dip mozzarella sticks in it. That's or you so can good. even dip sweet potato fries in it. Honestly, you could dip whatever delicious. the fuck you want in it. You, you know can what? just eat it. Shortbread cookies would probably be, <sighs> yeah. Fuck so yes. Just change your fucking life. You're welcome. And yes, yes. The J is for Jorts, which Jorts. is a family name. It's a family name. And Murder Face because Murder, Murder Face. Face. Death Clock, man. If you don't know Murder Face, we highly suggest you watch Death Clock or Metalocalypse. I'm sorry. Both work. Both work. So yeah, that's Maggie's new yeah, kitty that's cat. My new, that's my new news for everyone She's today. That's really adorable. why I'm leaving the podcast. Because <laughs> you got a kitty cat. I got a kitty. Honestly, like having three cats and a dog is like a second job now because i have to make sure everyone feels equally you, loved in my home you need to make sure everybody is equally loved i often do that with my dogs because i have three of them and i often feel like i don't give as much love to chloe as i do the other two because right. chloe is an independent woman yeah she don't need your love she doesn't you want her to need know. my love but i need to let her know that i still love her just as equally as woody and churro right other animal owners will understand the words that are coming out of our mouths. Anybody who doesn't own a pet is like, what the fuck are they talking who, who about? Who are these crazy cat ladies? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we are crazy yeah. cat ladies. Crazy crazy pet ladies. You're a crazy human parent, and we don't say shit, so, like, get off our dicks about it. You're, pre, you're pre-defending yourself. I am. Dude. It's fine. It's fine. I'm, we're going to do a lot of defending this episode, so. Ooh, all right. Coming in hot. Yes, just because we're talking about a very um maligned nerdy band. How dare they? How dare they? Welcome to Rock Candy. <laughs> Are we talking about nerds? Talk I mean, honestly, we nerds do Nerds talking nerds. Nerds talking That's nerds. That's gonna be our new podcast. <laughs> nerds talking nerds. <laughs> yes, we are your weekly podcast. Bringing you sweet treats from the world of music and stories and tales. Mm-hmm. And I'm Maggie, one of your hosts. I'm Ashley, one of your other hosts. <laughs> one of my other hosts. I How guess. many other hosts? Melba's now another Melba. host. She is in here. So. She's she's derping around somewhere. <laughs> uh, but yes, yes, we are talking about a very nerdy band. A band that we always said if we could be groupies for any band, it was going to be. Because we would be the first. Yeah. <laughs> 
and we would never sleep with any of them because we would probably go backstage and be like, oh, well, we don't really do that, but we'll hang out and talk We'll hang with out you. and drink and, you know, smoke, whatever. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Yeah, let's, we'll be yeah, let's be and friends. And you'd just be like, wow, are you respecting me as a human Yeah. <laughs> instead of a sex object? Weird. <laughs> but yeah, we're talking about Rush. Yeah. Today's Tom Sawyer, me, me, guy. <laughs> We're, We're going to talk about that today, right? No, we are not. What? We're not. No. Do they have a long storied history? Guess what, guys? <laughs> this is going to be a multi-parter. Um, we, we allocated two episodes, but this might turn into three, and I'm pretty sure it's going to turn into three. <laughs> so if you don't like Rush, sucks to be you. Yeah. I don't know what to tell Wait, you. If you don't like Rush, you're wrong. You're wrong, Listen. first of all. And Let uh, us defend Rush. Yeah, because there's going to be a lot of defending Rush. I don't think Rush needs to be defended because their music speaks for itself. But a lot of people are like, nah, they're garbage. No, they're not. Um, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's Absolutely fine. wrong. It's fine. But to uh, to bring a... I, I really need to know the six degrees of beer that Ashley's got for this one. I mean, we've drank this plenty of times before. Oh, this is one of our favorite beers, like... Ever. Yeah. So this we're drinking Lavenade by Springdale Beer Company, who is a subsidy of Jack's Abbey. Yes. Which is pretty close by to us. It's only a couple a couple hours away. In Chassamusets. In, in Chassamusets. Um, one of the redeeming qualities of the state. Okay, so let me tell you why I chose it. It's not because the name or anything has anything to do with Rush. It does not. No. It is because I recently got two packs of this beer because our dear friends Peter and Kirsten, who own a meadery that I work for called Helderberg Meadworks, mm-hmm. um, I was working on Saturday and Kirsten bestowed upon me two packs of this lavenade because she was at a beer store and they were like, get it now because it's going out of season. She was like, I'm getting these for Ashley. Because she's so nice. Because she's fucking nice. Because she knows. And I was like, okay, well, this is going to be my beer because I know that Peter is a massive Rush fan. Ah. Such a massive Rush fan that I was like, all right, well, this works anyway. The beer itself, the name, whatever, has nothing to do with Rush. But the people that gave us this beer... Are massive Rush fans. So thank you. So thank you for that. And I feel like it's appropriate. And also because like. Because this beer can fly by night. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's why. Exactly. It totally fucking flies by night. But also because um, we wouldn't really know Peter and Kirsten if it weren't for this podcast. I know. Because one of the very early episodes that we did was the Norwegian black metal episodes. Mm -hmm. And we drank the feral Feral. mead Mm. from Helderberg Meadworks. Definitely top three for me. So good. Still one of my favorite meads fucking ever. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, you know, they gave us this beer they were one of our first fans and yeah. some of our first friends made through this podcast. So that is the six degrees of beer for this. This is dedicated to you guys. You better like it. They're going to be like, Chris did it wrong. Like, we probably did. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. We're just trash. Eh, I mean, that's true. But also we're trash that no shit. So yeah. Whatever. Ashley's been researching this for like a month. <laughs> 
I have been on it. You really have, though. I love, like, you periodically message me with all these little tittle bits, and I'm like, And I'm like, but look at what they look like in 1971. A cool breeze could blow those fuckers (laughs) over. Absolutely could. It's like, it's like they didn't eat in Canada or something. Oh, come on, guys. So let's get into this story now that we've introduced our beer and all that shit. We introduced a kitten. We introduced a beer. Honestly, we're ready to go. All these introductions. Oh, my God. Now okay. there's more. Now there's more. So I suppose I need to cite my sources first. So I got this book called Rush FAQ Okay. by Max Mobley. It's a fine book, I guess. It's a fine I did book. get some good information from it, but, like, it again, like, with Rush, there are very much definitive uh, biographies, mm. but when you come on the bandwagon a little bit late, mm. it's sometimes hard to find them in yeah. in a price range that is less than five hundred dollars. Uh. So, <laughs> so like the the biographies that are hailed by Rush fans as being like top two or three couldn't find them. So this is like slightly below that this is like the this is like tier two which is fine so this is like tier two rush biographies and it's fine it's just kind of a jumbled mess Mm. which thankfully my research skills over the years have been you know honed and tightened like a nice butthole um so yes (laughs) i I could actually use it it did have some good information although i did have to corroborate their information with other resources that's the worst yeah however there is a really great documentary on netflix um called rush the beyond the lighted stage Mm. and it is quite good quite endearing absolutely love it but for the most part a lot of my information has come directly from interviews from these guys okay that makes sense so with that let me tell you something all right i'm tell me something good there are two kinds of people in this world those that love rush and those that fucking hate rush and those people are wrong wrong I'm sure there are people listening right now going, you guys only have a few episodes left and you're wasting it on these guys. To which I say, shut the fuck up. (laughs) The most criminal thing about Rush is that for being as popular and legendary as they are, they're still kind of an underground band. How many bands have we covered that name checked every band but Rush as influences, even though they probably are? Oh, that's a really good point. Right? Oh, I mean, definitely at least no one off the top of my head. Who? Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, oh, yeah, we'll get into that. I know we will. So it's about (laughs) time we discuss these three extraordinarily talented musicians in earnest. Put aside the nerdiness, the high-pitched vocals, the eight-minute-long songs. Do I have to put that stuff away? I mean, I'm telling other people to do it. You already appreciate those things. Cool, 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 cool. I want people to understand who Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart are as human beings because not only are they three of the most genuinely genuine humans on this planet, but they're fucking adorable and hilarious. Yay! They are people that all of us can relate to, and even after 50 years in this band, 
they're still grounded, which is more than I can say for people who aren't famous. I'm just like, wait, 50? Five zero? Five zero. They started in 1968. So 78, 2008, 2018. Holy shit. Yeah. Over, over 50 years. Wow. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> and so the story of Rush begins with two childhood besties, Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson. These two nebbish rapscallions met in junior high school, forming a fast friendship rooted in shared humor and eventually music. Would you say that Alex is Getty's friend for life, son? <laughs> Get out. <laughs> I did Get it. out, I'm done. I did it. <laughs> I ate everything. <laughs> The boys shared similar familial backgrounds, having come from immigrant families. But let's start with Getty first. Okay. Getty Lee was born Gary Lee Weinrib on July 29th, 1953, to parents Morris Weinrib and Manya Rubinstein. The family lived pretty decently as lower middle class citizens in northern Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and Morris and Manya's backstory is fascinating, but also devastating. Mm. And I really feel the need to tell this because it it really lends so much to who Getty is as a person and also a lot into their lyrics later on. Yeah, I did touch upon this a very little bit when I talked about Getty in our bassist appreciation episode, yes. but it, I didn't go deep at all. Oh, I'm going deep. Oh, geez. Getty's parents were from Poland, and as young teenagers, they saw their homeland invaded and occupied by German Nazi soldiers. Mm. Being Jewish, they themselves, their families, friends, and neighbors were forced into a ghetto in Starohowice, Poland. This was where 12-year-old Morris met the 13-year-old Manya, and they fell in love. Oh. After Starohowice, they were sent to the notoriously horrific Auschwitz concentration camp. What? Fuck. They were separated, but they still tried to keep in contact. Morris would even sometimes bribe guards to bring a pair of shoes or some food to Manya. Oh, it's so cute. They're like 13, 14. Wow. It's so cute. After a couple years or so, she was transferred to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and Morris was sent to Dachau. Oh, my gosh. So I have been to Dachau. Oh. And it is even having gone there when I was in high school in, you know, the early 2000s, mm-hmm. um, it was absolutely harrowing and horrifying. Mm. Like... They still have the concentration camp set up at like as much as they could. They do have some reconstructions of some buildings because after World War II, they burned a lot of it right, down. Right. And also the Nazis burned a lot of it down. Oh, yeah. They wanted to burn they, any yeah. proof. Take it all away. Yeah. Punch and pie for like the p- yeah. past 10 years. It's yeah. fine. Nothing it's happened It's been great, here. guys. Absolutely nothing's wrong. Let's just burn it all down. Um, So... Dachau, I know, was pretty fucking horrific. Like, Auschwitz is always, you the, know... I, I, the, the, like, I, infamous? I guess infamous, infamous um, concentration camp because it was so big. Yeah. But there were other concentration camps that were just as brutal. Yeah. And Dachau is one of those. Okay. Also, 
Bergen Belsen was. Oh, fuck. So to give you kind of an idea how bad Bergen Belsen was. um, So when it was liberated in 1945, the British soldiers went there to liberate everybody and get all the Nazis and whatever out there. They found, I think, 60,000 prisoners there who were absolutely emaciated Mm. and starving and everything and found another 13,000 corpses just (sighs) sitting out not even buried they were just sitting there fuck and even after they liberated the camp another 10,000 people died because they were in such horrible condition that's disgusting absolutely horrifying oh that's awful yeah and the getty said that the only reason his family survived so morris's family did not survive he was pretty much the only one that survived but manya's family did wow and he said that the only reason they really um survived was because of his grandmother she figured out that every day the nazi soldiers would line everybody up and they would go left, right, left, right, left, right. They would assign somebody a left or a right down the line. And if you were assigned a left, you'd go to the gas chamber. If you were oh. assigned a right, you would live. And it would differentiate every day. So they never knew who was going to survive or not. So what she did is she figured out, even with the language barrier, that that's what they were doing. She would line her family up so that they were alternating. There were people in between every family member. Because she said, if, we, if we're going to die, everybody's going to die together. If we're going to live, everybody's going to live together. Fuck. Wow. And she just wow. managed to keep her entire family alive by figuring that out. Holy shit. How fucking horrific is that? That you have to keep your family together by figuring out what these fucking monsters are going to do to them every day. Every fucking... That makes me fucking sick. Every day. And this is what Getty's mother and father went through. Yeah. Wow. So, for four years, Manya and Morris managed to survive in their respective concentration camps. For fuck... I don't... How? I don't know. For fucking years. It is a miracle in and of itself that both of them survived. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's insane. When they were finally liberated in April 1945, Manya assumed Morris died. Of course. And never thought she'd see him again. Mm. But Morris did survive and was still in love with her. So he searched for her. He found Manya in a Bergen-Belsen displaced persons camp and married her then and there. What? Yeah. I can't. Like they like they spent their honeymoon in the old office of a Nazi guard. I have so many feelings. It's like I'm horrified. I'm sad. I'm moved and touched like to tears. This is like like a movie, like an Oscar winning movie at this point. Fuck. Why isn't it? I don't know. But they uh, they really should. But they should. But don't. Don't. But also like. But it could be. But don't. But wow. Yeah. So this was a story rush, right? <laughs> it's like, is, I've already run the gamut of fucking emotions here. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be so many more emotions. Oh it's great. I get so emotional, baby. Every time I think, I think of Getty's parents. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> 
The Weenrib newlyweds moved to Canada in 1947. They had initially intended to move to America like so many European Jews after World War II, but at the last minute decided Canada looked nice. Canada does look nice. nice. They opened a variety store in Newmarket, Ontario and started their family, which included Getty's older sister, Manya, and younger brother, Alan. Oh, so is his sister named after his mother? Yes. Aw, that's fun. Yeah, but also Manya... Pretty much started going by Mary when she got to Canada. Mm. So, like, there was a differentiation between the two. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. That makes life easier. Unlike many Holocaust survivors, Morris and Manya never kept the details of their harrowing experience from their children. Mm. They talked about it openly, making sure Getty and his siblings understood why it was horrible and how it cannot ever happen again. Yeah. I mean, considering everything they went through and the fact that they still ended up together. Yeah, I'd fucking talk about that, too. Yeah, and the fact that, like, as Jewish people and as Orthodox Jews, like, they understood that there was still prejudice against them yeah they also impressed upon their children that they should be grateful for what they have even though they were struggling and didn't have much it could and would and has been much worse oh yeah i don't like that sadly in 1965 morris weenrib passed away (gasps) due to complications from the wounds he suffered during the holocaust (sighs) if they don't get you then that's you later. I mean, that may, yeah, the absolute horrifyingly ways that they were treated and the long lasting effects of those things. Even, I can't even imagine. Even if you weren't beaten or anything, just malnutrition can mm-hmm. fuck you up for a lifetime and, and prevent you, you know from what? living a, a nice life. The stress alone yeah. is going to take years <laughs> yeah. off your fucking life. Could, could do it. Yeah. You know. That could definitely. Even though he was only 12 years old, Getty followed through with the Hebrew tradition of mourning. Mm. Please forgive me if I get this wrong. I did my best to research what exactly this tradition was. Mm -hmm. So I believe the first 30 days after a loved one dies is called the Shiloshim, Mm -hmm. which starts with the funeral and sitting Shiva for seven days and then kind of you know, goes for the rest of the month. It's supposed to be a month of transition from extreme sadness to getting back to real life. Hmm. So Getty did that along with Shana, which is an 11 month period of mourning after a parent has died. Huh. Specifically a parent. Specifically a parent. Interesting. Yes. Okay. He went to synagogue twice every day, didn't partake in much entertainment at all, and instead helped his mom at the family store. And wow. mind you, he's 12 years old. So this is like prime time to just go buck fucking wild, you know? <laughs> and just like fuck off because you're 12 it, and yeah. hormones are starting to kick in. Yeah. And, you know, your voice is changing and all you want to do is, you know. Jerk it. Jerk it and like <laughs> look at chicks, I guess. Or I, I don't just, know. I don't know, like play video games. I mean, or read comic yeah. books. Read comic I guess, books because this and is listen, the 60s. listen to rock music. Yeah. You know. He did this for nearly a year, and his mom was so impressed and pleased that she wanted to do something nice for her son. Mm. When she asked him what kind of present he would like, his response was, Well, our neighbor is selling this real cool acoustic guitar with palm trees on it, and I'd really like to have it. Oh, baby Getty Lee. So she bought the guitar, which Getty diligently began to learn. 
Getty Lee. Oh, Getty. It's those palm trees, baby. <laughs> so exotic. That acoustic guitar is so exotic. I know. Look at those palm trees. It's like Hawaii. So, so sexy. So Hawaii. <laughs> it's so opposite of Canada. <laughs> Canada, palm trees, got it. Being a single mom with three kids and a store to run by herself, the already struggling family was struggling even harder. Yeah. Manya's mother moved in, but even with the extra help, Getty and his siblings kind of ran wild. Oh, okay. Like, like, all right, we're done mourning, so now we can go buck fucking wild? Great. Talk about latchkey kids, yeah. This is when Getty says he got in with a quote-unquote bad crowd by canadian standards Mm -hmm. (laughs) getty's idea of a bad crowd was basically him and his neighbors playing in their first band together which was called the dusty coconuts (laughs) i'll give you a minute to laugh about that (laughs) is it because of the guitar i don't know (laughs) (laughs) palm trees coconuts got it we need an adjective dusty Got it. Nailed it. All right. We're the dusty coconuts. Cool. Cool. Yeah. The bassist's mom said he couldn't be in the band anymore, so Getty was moved from guitar to bass. He again begged his mom for a bass, and she said okay, but he had to work it off at the family store. You know what? He was probably, oh, shucks. All right, ma. <laughs> oh, shucks, mom. Oh, shucks, mom. I guess I will. Oh, I'm real sorry. Oh, mom. Ma- oh, mom. I guess I better pay off this guitar. Hey. <laughs> eh? What the fuck what is that? that? I don't know. I don't know. Please continue. That's like Paul McCartney if he grew up in Canada. Yes. <laughs> That's, yes, Paul McCartney's Canadian son. There we go. This was also when Getty got his nickname. As mentioned before, his real name is Gary. Yes. But Manya has a thick Polish accent. So when she'd say his name, it sounded like Getty. Getty. Yep. Hey, Getty. Getty. Hey, Getty. Get in the house, Getty. Oh, I love that. His friends caught on and started calling him the same thing, and it stuck. What up, Getty? Yeah. They were like, what did she call you? It's like, my name? Gary? No, I definitely think no, she said Getty. No, she said Getty. You're Getty now. You know that, right? Like, fine. Around the same time, Getty became friends with a neighbor and classmate named Alexander Zhivoyinovich. Whoa. Alex, as he was known, was born to parents Nenad and Melania Zhivoyinovich. Wow. I said that name so many times trying to get it right. I even like spelled it out phonetically. Oh, yeah, phonetically. Oh, yeah. Because it's spelled Z-I-V-O-J-I-N-O-V-I-C, Zhivoyinovich. There you go. You don't ever have to say that again. Don't worry about but it. But I kind of like saying it now. It has a flow to it. It does. It's kind of like when I figured out how to say um, Juviettes, ah, the beer. It's like, I Juviettes. like saying it now. Juviettes. All right. Fair enough. I won't stop you from living your best life. <laughs> I know. Impressing everyone with that word with pronouncing polish last names yes you did it (laughs) much like getty's parents alex's father emigrated from war-torn europe to canada to start a new life so nenad was a serbian immigrant from yugoslavia which was overrun by nazis and then ruled by a soviet communist regime yeah and i couldn't i couldn't really find a whole lot of details on his life but alex did mention that he 
had been in like work camps and stuff in Yugoslavia. So oh. it sounds like he had a pretty fucking rough life too. Oh yeah. The, so the, yeah. I don't blame him for wanting to get the fuck out of there. That area was just as fucked actually probably more so after world war Two. they continue to be fucked and like, like through the 90s yes, and through 2000s. the 90s like yeah and still you know yeah still not great recently the war in kosovo and all of that shit it's it's just never at peace because we basically. don't we only paid attention to like three countries during world war three exactly and then afterwards like and we're done and we're like eastern europe nah nah at first, Nanad and his first wife went to Italy where they got married and gave birth to Alex's older half-sister. Hmm. And then the family tried to move to the U.S. but were denied entry. Instead, he found work in the coal mines of British Columbia, so the family settled there in a small town called Fernie. You know what? You- Canada's nice enough. If you don't know where British Columbia is, it is on the far west coast. Oh, yeah. Over by, like, Washington. It's quite far. Is where From fa- us. Where Vancouver is and all that shit. Shortly thereafter, Nenad's first wife passed away. However, oh, no. I'm not sure what from. I could not get that information. Hmm. A few years later, he met Melania, who was a waitress at a restaurant he frequented and was also a Serbian immigrant. Oh. He's like, hey, you, me, me, you. You see that? I see that. We bond over homeland? Yeah. Yeah. Got that. Nice. Get married? All right. All right. Let's do it. Within a year, Nenad and Melly, as she was called, were married and Alex came along on August 27th, 1953. Nenad sustained a back injury that put him out of the coal mining business forever. Which is probably for the best. Honestly, because... You would end up dying a quick death. Yeah. Painful. Coal, coal mining was not great, guys. No. Hey, coal's not great. It's not Maybe great we for the should stop. Not great for humans. Yeah. Let's stop. Yeah. There's other things we could do. So the family moved to the Toronto suburbs in search of more work opportunities. They eventually settled in Willowdale within a couple blocks of future Rush members. Ooh. For the first five years of his life, Alex only spoke Serbian and didn't learn English until he entered school. Wow. Yeah. That's... But his parents spoke English, I assume. They did speak very good English, too. Mm. I'm pretty sure his mom knew English before his dad Okay. Um, But eventually they did learn. Right. I don't know if they knew it before they moved to Canada or not. I just think it's interesting. Like, I wonder if they're like, I don't want to fucking speak English in my goddamn household. I'm going right. to speak fucking Serbian. Right. Like, good even for you. Even if they did know English, they probably were just like, we just want to speak Serbian when we're at home because it's so much easier. Yeah. I don't blame them for that. Oh, not at all. I just thought it was interesting because I feel like a lot of um, immigrant families, their first generation and... Um, North American children, mm-hmm. they'll usually really very much encourage, like, no, 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 you gotta speak English. Yeah, I really think it depends on which country you come from. Mm. I think a lot of European countries were like, I don't, I, I will learn English, but like, my kid needs to know my language. Yeah, I get that. So, yeah. His parents made sure that music was a priority for young Alex, nice. making him take viola lessons as a kid. Bushy. But as soon as the guitar came into his life, that viola could get fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you, viola smash. I found a new bitch. It's my guitar. (laughs) 
At 12 years old, Alex's parents bought him his first guitar in exchange for a good report card. And some palm trees. And some palm trees. It was a crappy acoustic thing that cost 10 bucks, which was a lot for Alex's parents who mm-hmm. actually had to borrow the money to buy it. Wow. But it made Alex happy for a time. Oh. He really wanted an electric guitar. Well, yeah. That's what all of his, you know, idols were playing. And he managed to rewire their television and rig it to the acoustic, effectively making it an electric, which you don't do at this point in time because TVs are expensive. Yeah. How is the TV broken? Isn't also like the TV filled with radiation back then? Oh, yeah. I'm sure he gave himself cancer doing that. But like everything he gives did, us cancer. Everything gives us fucking microwaves give us our TV. Our hungry man dinners give us cancer. And okay? all those kid cuisines were delicious. But I'm going to tell you, I'm dying. <laughs> that in fucking like brownie years. that was burnt around the edges <laughs> and raw in the middle. That's what gave us the fucking cancer. <laughs> yep, that's it figured it out why did i eat that i don't know it was delicious i would eat another one honestly (laughs) so yeah he ruined the tv and it ruined the acoustic guitar but it gave him the right excuse to ask for an electric one i don't know i feel like i'd (laughs) throw my kid out if they did that now i need to get you an electric guitar and a new tv the fuck alex no alex i'm getting a new tv and you gotta (laughs) figure your shit out yeah and you gotta go get a fucking job to buy your own goddamn electric guitar and he is really lucky he's got nice parents yeah all of these guys are really lucky that they had nice fucking parents yeah i was gonna say like no yeah this is why i don't have children exactly like that sucks doesn't it i'm getting a new tv i just had to pay for my dog's dental surgery and that was like once in a lifetime i can't imagine having to do this shit with my kid all the time no 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 give me a dachshund with shitty teeth any day yeah all right both alex and getty became obsessed with mastering their instruments it was while attending fisherville junior high school that they met and became fast friends bonding over their familial backstories their love of music and teenage boy humor which is dick jokes dick jokes in our (laughs) it's it's our it's balls it's all balls hey hey it's look balls. At, hey, hey, look at my balls. <laughs> hey, hey, look at my balls. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's funny. It is really funny. <laughs> Getty was also impressed with Alex's fashion sense, which included a purple paisley shirt and burgundy corduroys. Yo, actually, that sounds really, I'd wear that. really fucking fly. I kind of wear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do. Though they did jam together a lot, they didn't start out playing in bands together. They were just buds causing mischief. Mischief buds. Around 1967 or 68, while Getty was dusting off his coconuts, (laughs) Alex was playing in a band called The Projection with his friend and drummer John Rutsey. They pretty much just played a few covers and maybe had one or two shows before revamping everything. John's brother Bill said they needed a cooler name and said they should change it to Rush. Ooh. So they did. That is a cool name. It's it's short, it's concise, it's you know It's it's kinda like punchy. Ear catchy, like Rush. It's punchy. What? Like, yeah, it's catchy. Are we rushing to something? Yeah, maybe. Oh. Maybe we are. After recruiting a friend named Jeff Jones on bass and vocals, they were ready to take Canada by storm. Hell yeah. 
except they didn't. What? <laughs> they played their first show at a drop-in center called the Cough Inn, located in the basement of an Anglican Anglican church on September 19th, 1968. The drop-in? It's a no. It's a drop-in center, which I did not know what those oh, were. Drop-ins. Yeah, what is a drop-in so a center? drop-in center is kind of like it's kind of like what we call a teen center. Oh, like for yep, yep, yep. kids who are kind of on the street, not really doing much. They needed somewhere to go to get like some food and to just hang out and be indoors for a while and not get into like some and not get in trouble, trouble and yeah. shit like that. That's what a drop-in center is. Mm-hmm. So Canada apparently had a lot of these. And they would often have shows there. But they called this one The Coffin. This one was called The Coffin. I feel like that's not a great name. Especially when it's in a church basement. I have a lot of... But I think that's kind of funny. Oh, yeah. No, I (laughs) enjoy it. It's kind of brilliant. But, like, maybe not the best one. But anyway. We digress. Yeah. But after that show, Jeff fucking quit. (gasps) Jeff. Yeah. Jesk. Jess, why you quit? Yeah. <laughs> they weren't just out of bassist singer. They had another show lined up already that they were in danger of canceling. But Alex remembered that his friend Getty played bass and would often let him borrow his amp. So he called Aww. Getty in a panic, pleading with him to fill in for Jeff. And Getty's like, I told you like five times. My name is Gary, <laughs> not Getty. Gary. And he's like, I don't fucking care, Getty. Just get over here. Fine. I'll be there in like 20 minutes. Let me see if my mom can drive me. Basically. <laughs> Getty only had to learn four or five songs and he fucking nailed it. Yeah, of course he did. Because he gave fucking Lee. Yeah. And they're just covers of popular songs. So, yeah. The show went great. Instead of getting smashed out of their minds like other rock bands would have done after a successful show, these nice boys went to a deli and got gravy fries. Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Disco fries, though? Yeah. Mm, a poutine. They just got poutine. I don't know. They never said poutine. They just said fries with gravy. All right. So I'm assuming they're just disco fries. Unless an American wrote it and doesn't know what poutine is. Right. I'd say they got you no. Know, I Getty from his own mouth said he got they got gravy fries. All right, that's not. So poutine. I'm going with gravy fries. That's not that is not poutine. That's not poutine. Uh, so wait, how old are they at this point? Teenagers. So they are teenagers. Yeah, they're like 15, 16. Yeah, no, I'm not going to assume that 15, 16 year olds are a taking the world by storm. Nor do I think they're going to go get <laughs> hammered on like some fucking uh, Molson Canadian after yeah. a show. Yeah, or some Labatt Blue. Yeah, yeah, they're not going to do that. They're not doing that. I mean, they probably could have if they really wanted to, but mm. they didn't. Correct. Too much work. It's a lot. Like, they'd have to get them and like... <sighs> I know. So Getty was now officially Rush's bassist and frontman. However, it wasn't a position that he was very comfortable with. Hmm. He was kind of shy. He didn't really like being the center of attention and wasn't fond of his singing voice. It took a long time and a lot of practice before Getty was comfortable being front and center. That's fair. I think most, well, maybe not most, but I feel like at least half of the people who become the leads in bands are usually like the reluctant lead. Where they're like, I know this is out of necessity, but I don't, should it be me? Yeah, Kurt Cobain never wanted to be the front person. He never wanted to be the singer, but... Through the process of elimination, yeah. he kind of ended up being that by default. So yeah. Getty was the one with the best voice. So yeah, he was going to be 
the lead singer, yeah. whether he liked it or not. Like, oh, I guess this is my job now. Yes, yes, yeah, it is. It is. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> sorry, but not sorry. You gotta do it. And just when he was getting comfortable, they kicked him out of the band. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. He was replaced very briefly by a guy named Joe Perna, and they renamed the band Hadrian. Which is a, I, I think it's a pretty good. No, I hate it. I like, I, I like, I like it. the name, but it's not as good as Rush. No, what, Hadrian? Hadrian. Is somebody like Portman towing Hey Adrian? <laughs> Hadrian! No, Hadrian was a Roman emperor. Mm. He built the fucking Hadrian Wall in the UK. Yeah, I don't care. I, <laughs> I don't care about this dude and his fucking wall. I don't. It's a stupid name for a band. It is. It's not Rush and it's not Getty Fine. fine. It's fine. I agree. They played one particularly terrible show and decided that was a bad choice. Kicked Perna <laughs> out and got Getty. Yeah, this is their one oopsie. This is their butterfingers for you know the early times but yeah they kicked perna out and got getty back in continuing as rush for the rest of their career <laughs> hey getty we're real sorry eh? yeah real we're real sorry real sorry, eh? it was also around this time that the boys legally changed their names to getty lee and alex life we know getty's name was his childhood nickname but Alex chose Lifeson because it's pretty much the English translation of his Polish last name, oh. which is Son of Life. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Oh, good for you, Alex. Good but, like, choice. You knew every single journalist that wrote about them would completely massacre his last name. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's valid. I just think it's funny that they're like, well, we're going to be a big hit, so we should probably change our names so journalists aren't going to have like a hard teenagers. time. teenagers. Honey, you 17. Yes. And I I listened to an interview where Getty was like, I didn't even know my middle name was Lee until I tried to change my name and I had to get my birth certificate. <laughs> he was like... Oh, yeah. Getty Lee. That sounds great. I'll do that. Yeah. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> sounds better than Ween Rib. I agree. Is it Wine Rib? It's Ween Rib. Huh. It's spelled like, it looks like it should be Ween Rib or Wine Rib, wine rib or something like that. It's Ween Rib. Interesting. All yeah. right. Hey, I don't know. It's not We're going to talk a whole lot about last fucking names in this episode. So, um,. Gird yourselves, I guess. Oh, consider myself girded. Okay, cool. I got my gird shirt on. <laughs> got my girding pants on. Says, and my girding hat. <laughs> but I'm not wearing any panties. <laughs> my girding panties are at home. <laughs> I left those in the wash. <laughs> They dirty. <laughs> I've girded myself too many <laughs> times this week. Okay. We, All right. We, we, Sorry. We're, we're Sorry. done girding things. Okay. Let's. <laughs> In early 1971, Rush met Ray Daniels, founder and CEO of SRO Productions that had become a big fan after catching a few of their shows. So wait a minute. Did they... Get all these shows because of um, like just word of mouth kind of thing, or do they know people? Yes. So, <laughs> yes. Basically, they were playing a lot of like teen shows. Yeah, and I'll get into it a little bit here after we talk about Ray Daniels. Okay. Along with his partner Vic Wilson, 
Ray became Rush's manager. Mm. He was a vitally important person to the band, continuing to manage Rush throughout most of their career. Okay. And a fun fact, this Ray Daniels guy was the one that drove a wedge between Van Halen Brothers and Sammy Hagar, effectively leading to Sammy's ousting and the hiring of Gary who? Gary Sharon. I <laughs> Yeah, he was the one that basically facilitated Sammy Hagar getting kicked out of Van Halen and Gary Sharon. Financial things. I didn't take a deep dive into it because I don't fucking care. Financial Um, things. Financial things. Financial things. Wow. If you're anybody outside of downstate New York. So Getty Sharon. Got it. Yeah, Gary Sharon. Getty Sharon. Yeah, Getty Sharon took over for (laughs) Sammy Hagar. Can you imagine <laughs> Getty Lee heading up Van? Oh no! It would work for like twenty reasons, but like it's like everybody trying to do the most complicated riffs that they possibly could at the same time, and none of it working. <laughs> and you're like, I and Alex it- Van Halen just drum soloing the whole time, and just then you have like just a seizure, and you're like, I'm done. Cacophony. 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 I said it right this time. Anyway. So Ray put his money where his mouth was and covered every telephone pole in Toronto with rush flyers. Oh. And booked the band at any show he could get. These guys were only about 16, so they couldn't play bars or anywhere that was 21 plus because they weren't even allowed to drink. Oh, so they were pretty strict about that whole thing. Yeah. So instead, Canada had a pretty decent high school hall circuit. Mm. So bands with younger members could essentially tour by only playing high school dances. So that's where Ray booked Rush. That's so, I don't, I can't like see that working. (laughs) (laughs) But like. But only in Canada. But I think with these high school dances, like, you could promote them like an actual concert and anybody could come. You just weren't allowed to drink. And it was mostly just, like, kids just sitting down and listening. There wasn't, like... (laughs) Kids are so well behaved in Canada. But at the same time, they were playing, like, like legitimate yearly, like, high school dances where kids did want to dance. Yeah. And that was the operative word here was dance. Believe it or not, Rush didn't play a lot of jazzy numbers that caught the kids on their feet. What? They wanted to rock out, whether that was playing The Who or Jimi Hendrix covers or their own stuff. I want to hear Keddie Lee covering Jimi Hendrix. I know, right? Roll bad. <laughs> By the time they were seniors in high school, music became everything to these guys. It was especially difficult for Alex to concentrate on anything but music. He didn't care about school anymore. He just wanted to play in a band. Yeah. Just want to play in a band. I get it. That's when they decided to drop out of school and play music. And break all the TVs. Break all the TVs and all the acoustic guitars with the palm trees and play music full time. So wait, were they like just about to graduate and then they're like, no, let's yes. just. Yes. Yes. They were seniors. They were 18. Every time. Every fucking time. Every fucking time. Just just do. I, I don't know why it bothers me so much. I know you're successful and it's fine. And you know what? Everything worked out. I don't know why I give a fuck. But just finish those last two semesters. Just finish. Last two, last two months. Just finish them. Yeah. 
This was a devastating blow to Alex and Getty's parents. Oh, you don't say. All of them being from very poor and very difficult backgrounds, Getty's mom spending the year she would have been at school in a concentration camp. They highly valued education. Yeah. Alex's parents just wanted him to finish the 12th grade. But for Getty, his mother didn't speak to him for about a year after this. No shit. She was <gasps> so devastated that he would not finish high school. Wow. And like, even in Beyond the Lighted Stage, there are clips of, they must have filmed like their meetings with Alex and his parents and their management to like tell them that he wanted to quit school. Oh, no. And he was trying to explain to them like he was being such a fucking bratty little 18 year old and he was like i just i don't want to like make a ton of money i don't want to like drive around you know in a nice car and have everybody be like oh this alex he has all this money like i just want to follow my dream and my dream is to make music and like in order to do that i have to quit school and they're just (laughs) like we just saying just finish the 12th grade you got like (laughs) fucking six weeks yeah. left there is two parents are just sitting there like we just want you to graduate like that's all we're asking it's not like as adults we can watch that and be like that's not unreasonable it's not an unreasonable request but to an 18 year old whose brain hasn't fully developed yet that's yeah like, who's you're like, asking me to give yeah. up my dreams and then they cut to a scene of alex as a grown adult like commenting on it he's like i thought i knew everything I knew nothing. Oh, Alex. It's like, at least you realize that now. But like, like, you know, in their 30s, they all went back to their mamas and they're like, I'm really I'm sorry so I didn't sorry. finish school. I know that really upset it, like, you. It worked out for the best, but there was a huge fucking chance that it would not. Have. Um, Yeah, there's a mostly fucking chance. Yeah, there was like a minuscule percentage that it could have actually worked out. Seriously. And it just so happens it worked out for them. So, yeah. This was their way of rebelling. Yeah. Like, they weren't hard partiers. Like, they partied, but not, like, incessantly or, like, to a crazy degree. They didn't do a whole lot of drugs, and they didn't really drink and go nuts. Right. For all intents and purposes, they were good kids. Yeah. This was how they were going to get as far away from their lives and their parents and rebel against everything they knew. By not finishing the 12th fucking grade. Come on. <laughs> just do it. So rebellious. That's when you look at your kid like you're being a fucking idiot. And I want to tell you why you're being a fucking idiot. But also they're not going to understand because you're giving them like all of your life experience and they haven't had you that. You don't get it, man. Parents just don't understand. You know what? Will Smith was not wrong. <laughs> Except a wise, a wise man once said. Except 100% parents like have a general idea. They do. They're just dated and they fucking hate themselves yeah. and all of society. So like you'll you'll figure it out in 20 years when you're just as jaded as they are. I feel like he should remake the song to say parents have a general idea. <laughs> like they don't completely understand because like, you know, shit changes. But yeah. also think you have a general idea. Parents just don't understand this generation, but they kind of went through it also. So they have a general idea. So maybe you should listen to them and compromise. Yeah, compromise. That could be the title of Will Smith's. <laughs> Revise parents just don't understand. Everybody compromise. Parents just don't understand, parentheses, revised. 
Oh my god. I love it. After about a year of playing school dances for a handful of people at each gig, not oh. really going anywhere, but still gaining valuable experience. Yeah, really glad they trapped out of school for yeah, that. They got a pretty nice break. Oh. In 1971, Ontario lowered its drinking age from 21 to 18. Oh. That's that still the case? I don't know. I All was right. well over 21 when I went to Toronto, so I Same. didn't really need to know. Same. Yeah. All right. That meant that they could play bars for bigger audiences that had wider musical tastes. Bars wanted rock and roll bands, and bars paid way better than school dance halls. Yeah, they do. Wow, that is lucky. Yeah. That's fucking lucky. If they didn't change that, it would have been years before anything happened. Yeah. And I don't even think Neil Peart would have joined the band. No? So... Yeah. Over the next year, Rush built a following and were playing shows six days a week in Toronto clubs like Abbey Road Pub and Gasworks. And if you think Gasworks sounds familiar, Mm -hmm. it is because Gasworks was immortalized in Wayne's World. That's right. The Gasworks. Yeah. I think they intended on making a club that was like Gasworks for the movie, but they ended up just using the name. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I like that. They got paid $1,000 a week, which was really great money back then. That's fucking great money back then for teenagers. Yeah, especially for only three dudes. Yeah. And the music they were playing in the early 70s was much different than what we normally think of as the Rush sound. Mm -hmm. They all liked bluesy rock and roll like Cream and Jimi Hendrix and The Who, so they liked playing gutsy rock and roll with attitude. But John Rutsey was also a big glam rock fan and he brought those elements to the band. Ooh. When viewing footage and photos from these early shows, these guys have the long hair, the big ass bell bottoms, the LeMay shirts, yes. and getting doing lots of high kicks and heels. Yes, Getty. Get it, Getty. Mm, get it, Getty. <laughs> Love it. Rush recorded their self-titled debut album in late 1973 and released it in March 1974. It went nowhere with lots of critics saying it sounded way too similar to led zeppelin they were basically the greta van fleets of the 1970s <laughs> that's the most hipster reference i've ever heard in my fucking Isn't life it? i almost hate myself for it <laughs> ray daniels who had sold his management company to fund the album worked his butt off shopping the album out to record companies but they just weren't biting Mainly because there weren't any record companies in Canada. (laughs) What? This was something that Americans would need to discover in order for Rush to go anywhere. Yeah, that makes sense. They were right. It wouldn't be Canada that gave Rush their big break. In fact, it was a radio station in Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland does, in fact, rock. And that... Okay. That's hilarious that you fucking bring it up because oh. this radio station's like theme song was the Cleveland Rocks. Cleveland Rocks. rocks Cleveland Rocks. rocks Cleveland yeah. Rocks. Cleveland Rocks. Yeah. That was their <laughs> theme song. And then Drew Carey ended up using it for his theme song. That's right. Yes. It was this radio station that got them their big break. My gourd. Yeah. This was WMMS 101 FM. Wins. <laughs> and their disc jockey, Donna Halper, yes, a fucking lady, mm-hmm. was perusing the new music the radio station got in that week, searching for what was called a bathroom song. 
Or a song that was long enough enough that you could go go take a leak and it wouldn't run out. Nope. I love bathroom songs. She listened to the whole album start to finish and fucking loved it. Yep. And she especially loved Working Man because that was a long ass song and she could fucking take a leak during that song. Oh shit. Working Man is on this album? Yes, it is. I love Working Man. But working Man is a great song. Call me the Working Man. Yeah. I guess that's what I am. I mean, there's a lot of elements to this album, and it is very, very reminiscent of Led Zeppelin. But yeah. Working Man stands out at be- just because it's a long song, but also it's very indicative of where Alex and Getty wanted to go. Yes. And it's also the most, like, heartfelt song, I feel like. Yeah, you know what? Now that you say that, the bass line especially is very Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Very, like, Black Dog. It's kind of like, take Led Zeppelin and stretch it out and make it a bit jammy, a bit proggy, and then you have Rush's rendition of Led Zeppelin. So if Led Zeppelin were a Stretch Armstrong doll. Basically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and even when they were, they would play this song and like people would start calling in and requesting it and when they would request it, they would be like, yo, I want that new Led Zeppelin song. And they were like, no, <laughs> it's Rush. And yes, we will play it for you because it fucking slaps. Yep. So yeah, they were the exact kind of songs that working class Cleveland could get into. With a bit of hype behind their name now, in June of 1974, a copy of Rush's album landed in the hands of Cliff Bernstein, A&R guy at Mercury Records. Oh. He was so blown away that he insisted they get signed immediately, offering the guys a $200,000 record deal that they obviously signed. Yes, please. We dropped out of high school. We need to prove <laughs> we to need our money. parents that this was okay. We're starving Canadians. We need money. I mean, have you seen how skinny these boys seriously, are? Seriously, what kind of metabolism do they have? Ugh, seriously. The metabolism that runs on cigarettes and alcohol, probably. But, like, they weren't big drinkers or smokers. They, they drank. So they they weren't super partiers, but they did drink. Yeah. And they did smoke a fuck ton of pot. Oh, I mean, you know what? Later songs would lead me to believe. Of course they did. Of course they did. But um, they just didn't get into a lot of trouble. They weren't like destroying hotel rooms or yeah. fucking everybody they laid, laid eyes on they were just like no we're just gonna have a fun time together I mean, and like sm- oh, it's like it's oh, the garbage friends. gang basically oh except they were in a band too you know they were just like yeah we can drink we can fucking take edibles and like fuck around you know whatever yeah. but like they weren't causing any trouble you know oh, i fucking love these people they are like people of my own yeah you know, like I ain't heart. here to ruin anybody's good time. I'm just gonna get I'm here a little to drunk. Enhance the good time. I'm gonna get a little high. I'm not gonna fuck anything up. Just don't harsh my mellow, exactly. dude. I won't fuck with you. You don't fuck with me. We just have a good time. Word. That's it. That's what Rush is here for. Yeah. But of course, as they always do, musical differences were already showing up to the party. What? No. So John was more of a straight up rock and roll guy, whereas Alex and Getty were writing more complex, progressive rock a la Mm -hmm. bands like Genesis, Yes, and Pink Floyd. Yes. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> On top of that, John's health wasn't spectacular. Oh, no. He had type 1 diabetes that he didn't really monitor, oh. and his body suffered for it. So they made the tough decision to let John go. Oh. Which kind of sucks, because like a lot of people don't realize that Neil Parrott was not the first drummer right i didn't and, know that until just now and john rutsey was a really great drummer mm-hmm. um he was more along the lines of like straight up rock and roll like yeah um you know who was popular back then like he really liked the new york dolls he oh. really liked bad company okay he really liked you know straight up rock and roll bands from the 70s and that was the direction he was going whereas alex and getty were like we need somebody who has a lot of fucking drums. Drums. <laughs> we need someone who has uh, more than six drums. We need we need a bigger drum kit with a person who can handle it. A very long person who can handle a lot of drums. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, like they they still kind of kept in touch with John after he left the band. Oh, that's good. And he didn't really pursue music after that, but oh. um he. You know, he lived a he lived a good life. I well, guess. I hope he fixed his diabetes. He did not. He actually passed away in the two thousands, two thousand eight, I think, from complications due to diabetes. Oh, he. I he, mean, I guess you can't fix diabetes. I guess I just mean like he learned to manage it. I mean, he must have if he learned lived to the two thousands. I mean, he stayed alive with it. I don't know if he necessarily managed it because what he died from was complications that could have been prevented had he taken care of himself. Oh. So. I know nothing of like how diabetes works. Like type one anyway. Yeah. That's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that about John. It is. Um, But as far as I know, up until that point, he did live a very nice life. Good. As far as I know. As long as he was happy. So his last gig with the band was on July 25th, 1974. They had a big tour in less than a month and needed a new drummer like yesterday. They auditioned five drummers and decided that Neil Peart was the main man for the job. Is it because it took him three hours to bring in all of his fucking <laughs> drums? It did like, not. Yeah. yeah, you know what? I think we need all these drums. Yeah. But I am going to say right here... If we get any emails, any comments, any messages about how I am pronouncing Neil Parrott's last name. Oh, damn. I am going to burn it the fuck down. She will. I've seen it. Because I have I have done research on this. I have listened to clips of the man saying his own fucking last name. <laughs> and guess what? It's Peart. It's Peart. It's not Pert. It's not Peart. It's Pert. That's how you fucking pronounce it. It's like pear with a T. Pert. Literally, it's the word pear with a T on the end. Pert. It's Pert. So okay. don't come for me. I won't. Because I will give it right back to you. That's how you pronounce his name. Okay. I mean, she's not wrong. I have heard him say his own name. And I trust that the is man literally knows how to say his name. how you fucking name. say his name. Okay. Anyway. Okay. okay. Neil Elwood Peart was born on September 12th, 1952, to Hagersville, Ontario residents Glenn and Betty Peart. The first two years of Neil's life were spent on the family farm in Hagersville, where he was a self-described farm boy with a temper. (laughs) (laughs) 
just, I just, I can totally see just this imagine soul. baby Neil just stomping around the farm real fucking angry. I hate these cows. Fuck these cows. I hate these sheep. <laughs> I hate everything. He is stupid. Stop, stop, Stupid stop. fucking farm. I hate everything. These chickens are mocking me. <laughs> Ah, fuck you, sheep. He's such a cranky little baby. (laughs) As he grew up, he learned to wrangle his temper. At the same time, he developed an interest in, well, everything. Oh. Like, literally everything. When Neil was two years old, his father got a new job as a manager for a farm machinery company. The family left the Hagersville farm and moved to St. Catharines, a city located on that land bridge between Niagara Falls and Canada. Yeah. Yeah. It's like in there. Oh, like, okay. I know exactly where like that is. If we were, t- if you and I were to drive to Toronto, we mm-hmm. would go through St. Catharines yep. because that's how you get to Toronto. Yeah. I got real fucked up trying to drive through there once. <laughs> I know exactly I where St. Catharines is. I've heard some not so great things about St. Catharines, but like. Well, I just mean like because like GPSs when you go from America to Canada, oh, yeah. unless you pay for like extra for the maps, you just like it shits out and you're like, where do I go from here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have to pay extra for that special, yeah. you know, Google I Maps, assume I guess. phones are different now. I don't know. I haven't been to Canada in a fucking minute, so. So, yeah, they moved to St. Catharines, and after the move, Glenn and Betty expanded their family, adding son Danny and daughters Judy and Nancy to the pair to brood. Damn, they were like, now we need to, like, a couple more. But all the children. More children. Even though, but, like, now you don't live on a farm, so you don't need the extra help. (laughs) Why do you have more kids? Because they were medieval peasants that needed to put their children to work. Is, it, is that now why people have children? Is that now what Canada is? It's it's still a serfdom, right? <laughs> Do what? they have vassals? What is Canada? I'm so confused. St. <laughs> Catharines, everybody. Despite having plenty of siblings to goof around and develop social skills with, Neil pretty much kept to himself. He was a terminally shy person. That is to say that his shyness was debilitating. Oh, no. From the time he was very little, he was the wallflower, and that continued throughout his entire life. It's because those chickens mocked him. It's because of the chickens. They fucked up his self-esteem. Yeah, and fucking bullied by sheep. Yeah, you know what? Honestly, fuck those farm animals. (laughs) Neil had every right to be How mad dare at him. you do that to Neil, farm animals? He's a nice person. You're just livestock being mean. Anyway, he always found it difficult to interact with people, especially fans that were really enthusiastic about meeting him, and that would come through later in Russia's music. Oh. Like, just people were like, oh, you're Neil Burton. He's like, oh, you're a fan. I can't oh, deal I with know. this. And like, just two people and about is- to explode having an interaction yeah. together. And he's just like silent, but in his mind, he's like, run away. Run away. Why run are away. you so excited to see me? I don't get What's it. Happening? Leave me alone. Run away. Oh, Neil. Yeah. But in the meantime, Neil used his time alone to learn about anything and everything he could. But in the meantime, Neil used his time alone to learn about anything and everything he could. You could 100% call him a nerd. And even his mom, Betty, described him as a weird kid. She was like, yeah, he was weird. He was weird. So what you're saying is we would have gotten along really well with Neil. Yes. 
She said that even that he even learned how to knit because he just needed to know how it was done. Wow. Like he was just that inquisitive. I don't blame him though. Watching someone knit, you are kind of like, but so how do you, you do that? You do, you do that and that. Oh. Especially like if you're watching somebody crochet really fast. Oh, it's yeah. like, how did you do that? You made that in like five minutes. Oh, I can never, I can crochet and I can still not understand how people like make a fucking scarf in 45 minutes. Oh Yeah. I'm like, what? And they're like, it's just straight lines. I'm like, no, it's not. I cannot understand how people can crochet a scarf and make it even. Mm. I have no clue how no that happens. No fucking idea. I can crochet a scarf. No. Yeah. It ain't going to be even, though. No. No idea how that happens. None. It's witchcraft. Yeah. Respect. It is. And you know what? I love witchcraft. I still can't make a straight scarf. Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> But Neil was also a voracious reader, filling his bedroom with stacks on stacks on stacks of books. Nice. And though we see this geekery as a virtue now, Mm -hmm. Neil's classmates didn't see it the same way. Yeah, not in like the 50s, 60s. Hell no. No. He was a tall, gangly young man, really quiet, kind of weird, with an absolutely brilliant mind oh he was so smart so he was a huge target for bullies he was so intelligent that he skipped two grades and entered high school at age 12 two 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 which instantly made him an outcast all right like i've heard of one two two yeah though he had a very loving home life he was endlessly bullied at school oh poor buddy and school was an absolute nightmare, but he didn't mind being an outcast so much. He was fine hanging out with himself, and his love of all things nerd never left him, mm. even after he discovered drumming. And at some point as a tween, he saw a 1959 biopic about the legendary jazz drummer Gene Krupa. Oh. This prompted Neil to grab a pair of chopsticks and bang on every surface of the parrot home. <laughs> Which would have driven me fucking insane. Oh, I would have gotten my hands broken in my house for that shit. Yeah. (laughs) His parents then bought him a real pair of sticks, a practice drum, and some lessons for his 13th birthday, promising that if he stuck with it for a year, they would get him a real kit. Nice. And that's how you fucking do it. And he did it. He did it. And I bet I bet there were no palm trees on None. it. He didn't fucking break the TV for no. it. Neil's doing it right. <laughs> He's already got a leg up on these other two guys. Oh, shit. For his 14th birthday, he got his first real drum kit and started lessons at the Peninsula Conservatory of Music. Oh, shit. That sounds fancy. Though he was learning the jazz and traditional rock techniques, he'd also started getting into bands with a bit more flair mm. or as i like to say a bit more woo rick flair <laughs> <laughs> keith moon of the who was a huge influence of course the wild abandon of keith moon's technique and showmanship was fascinating to neil especially to a super shy kid he's like i want to do that but i don't want anyone to ever yeah. see it but <laughs> he wanted to emulate that The first time Neil was able to show off behind the kit was at a Christmas pageant at St. John's Anglican Church in Port Dalhousie. Oh. That was followed up by a gig at his school's variety show with his band Eternal Triangle. (laughs) 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I I didn't deep dive into that. I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to let that be. All right. You just hang there with your eternal triangle. They played an original song called LSD Forever because these 14 year olds have ever taken LSD. Oh, yeah. They know all about a trip. Know all about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it featured a drum solo. Prompting the audience to shower Neil with praise. Oh, shit. It was the first time he really felt like people gave a shit, which did wonders for his self-esteem. Oh, Neil. I just want to hug him. I just want to put him in my pocket and take him out and be like, hey, it's going to be okay. I'm going to tell you nice things every once in a while. You just stay in my pocket. You just stay in my pocket. Yeah. I'll just tell you how good things are, (laughs) how great you are. School soon took a backseat to drumming, and it was quickly becoming clear that that's where his future was going to lie. And so he dropped out of high school. (laughs) He did. God damn it! After bouncing around the requisite early bands with silly names like Mumbling Something and Wayne and the Younger Generation. Wait, was it really called Mumbling Something? Mumbling Something. I hate it. I hate it so much. That's why he was only in it for like a hot second. But... Yeah, Neil landed a spot with a band called J.R. Flood. So J.R. Flood was already established in the area like a real working band. So Neil was allowed to quit school at 17 years old and become a drummer full time. Shouldn't he have been done with school by that point anyway? At 17? No. Well, he started high school at 12. I suppose. Four years he should have been done at 16. Should've. But if he started fucking up because he started taking drums. Maybe if maybe he had to take some sabbaticals or something so he could go drum. <laughs> I don't know. Drumbaticals. <laughs> oh, Neil. As much as Neil liked the steady paycheck from J.R. Flood, he knew he had more in him than just being the best drummer in St. Catherine's. Yeah, I have more in me than being the best drummer in St. <laughs> I think we all do, yeah. All of these great progressive rock bands were coming out of England around 1970, like Genesis, King Crimson, and mm. yes. Yes. Ba- yes. <laughs> bands that really spoke to Neil, because they were just whispering in his ear going, yes. <laughs> so he thought he'd give it a go in London. Wow. Yeah, I never knew any of this about Neil Peart. Never knew. Well, shit, Neil. Tell me about how you're a fucking worldwide sensation. Yeah, I buy it. In July 1971, Neil packed up his drum kit and record collection, shoved $200 in his pocket, and flew to London. His friend Brad French gave him a couch to sleep on until he could get some gigs, but the gigs never came. What? He would get a disappointing lounge gig or a low-paying session gig here and there, but nothing that would pay his bills. Disappointed in the lack of drumming opportunities afforded to him, Neil had to take a job at a souvenir shop his friend owned on Carnaby Street in London. Can you imagine? No. Neil Parrott. Working retail. Neil Parrott, the only one who was allowed to leave high school early. And so far, the only one not making anything out of it. Well, the other two did leave school early. They just had to fight with their parents. Right, but Neil did not have have to to fight. He did not have to fight with his parents. His parents were like, no, if you think you can really do this, like, we have faith in you. Go for it. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's upsetting. He's the only one that didn't have to fight for it. Everyone else was like, you're too stupid to do that. Are you kidding? (laughs) 
It may have been demoralizing, but the job not only gave him steady pay, it got him connections in the music scene. Okay. Through this job, he landed a spot in a band called English Rose in 1971, but it turned out that these dudes were wicked sketch, paying him in ill-gotten bundles of cash. What? Yeah. Neil wasn't too keen on these guys and smartly quit the band and returned home after only a year and a half in England. You know what? It's fine. It's fine. It's valuable experience. Yeah. You, you know what? You and learn like, things. Look, you don't ever have to give anyone the details of London. You're just like, oh, yeah, I spent a year and a half over in London doing some gigs. Because then it makes you sound like international and, mis- and mysterious. Yeah. Like, nobody knows the details of why you were over there. They just know you were over there. Well, I just did some session gigs and I, you know, yeah. helped out a couple bands. I just really wanted to, like, get the vibe over there. Yeah. Just, you know. See who is, you know, really doing stuff there. You don't have to tell anyone about English Nobody. Rose. Ever. Ever. But you did. And now it's canon. So. That was on you, bro. That was on you, Neil. Upon returning to Canada to work at his dad's equipment dealership. My dad totally has a dealership. Of equipment. <laughs> he joined another locally established band called Hush. Stop it. No, he did not. Not even kidding. No, he did not. Yeah, called Hush. He wasn't in the band for very long before a white Corvette pulled up to the dealership asking for Neil. Little white Corvette (laughs) asking after Neil. Neil. (laughs) So wait, was the lead singer's name of Hush um, Letty Gee? I'm asking. I just want to know. And Lex dead daughter <laughs> what oh my god yes yep the yes. bizarro version of bizarro rush version is of rush. hush <laughs> beautiful uh. <laughs> so in the white corvette was rush's management coming to personally invite neil to audition for the band that had just let their drummer go oh shit They had a deal with Mercury Records already and were about to go on tour to support their newly released debut album and needed a drummer now. I need a drummer and I need it now. 877-NEIL-NOW. (laughs) (laughs) And bless Neil's parents' hearts. They were just so supportive of him. Neil was flip-flopping, not sure if he should do it, like join the band and Glenn basically said this is your passion and this is the opportunity of a lifetime there will mm-hmm. always be a parts counter for you to work at so you should just go for it honestly yeah I mean he's got parents with steady work who's like I don't give a fuck if you fall on your face I will always have a job for you here I will support you yeah go and fuck you up can always make an honest living yeah those are good parents they are such oh good God. parents Neil Pertence Neil's Pertens. Pertens. <laughs> so Neil stuffs his mom's pinto with his gear and goes to the audition. Ironically, the band that everyone else thinks is nerdy and dorky thought Neil was too dorky for the band. Wow. wow. They literally thought he wasn't cool enough to be in the band. <laughs> I don't even know how to process like, that. How uncool do you have to be to be so uncool you can't be in Rush? I 
Yeah. But I love them. Bless their fucking hearts. But like, guys. Come on. And it's great. You're all this. You know what? You're all perfect for each other. You all are perfect and adorable and lovely. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I'm going to do this for the rest of the series. I hope you know that. Well, now we have to for everything. We're legally obligated. Yeah, it's in our contract. <laughs> <laughs> but then he started playing and fucking blew them away. Oh, I fucking bet. Neil's over here thinking he blew the audition, but Getty and Alex knew they found the perfect drummer. Ah, we did it. Yeah. They're Sorry. like, hey, hey, before you leave, though, look at this. It's my balls. <laughs> <laughs> and if he laughs, he's in. He's in. If he's disgusted, fuck him. He's yep. out. Good thing he laughed. Good thing he laughed. The next two weeks were a trial by fire for these guys. They only had that amount of time for Neil to learn all their songs, find their groove as a band, and get to know each other personally before going out on tour. And it wasn't some rinky-dink club tour. Mm -mm. Rush was opening for Uriah Heep and Manfred Mann in arenas with 10,000 people or more. Oh, wow. It was a whirlwind of a tour, but also the first time America was exposed to Rush. Mm -hmm. People love them, including the guys in Kiss. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I bet. They're like, wow, those are good musicians. What are we doing with our lives? Yeah. After the Uriah Heap tour, they opened for Kiss for 50 to 60 shows. Wow. Taking them around the U.S. and back. And Getty is now very diplomatic in his opinions of Kiss. I mean, I get it. But he did say that they learned a lot about working hard to put on a great show and give the audience a good time. You know what? And credit where credit's due. Kiss puts on a big show to make the fans happy. Right. And in the documentary, there is a scene that just solidifies my hatred of Gene Simmons. I mean, yeah. Because, like, he was talking about how, like, there were there were lines of women backstage ready to just fuck any member of Kiss Look. and, like, potentially fuck any uh, member of Rush if they wanted to. But, like... They would just go back to their hotel and, like, chill out and, you know, not fuck tons of women all the time. That just wasn't what they wanted to do. And Gene Simmons just could not fathom why they wouldn't partake in the debauchery. And he literally said, and I quote, You could be an ugly bastard like me and get laid, and none of the Rush guys ever did it. I just never understood it. They're not gay. No farm animals no that's not it then what the fuck did you do when you went back to your hotel room end quote here's, you, you chilled out yeah like here's the thing i do not malign any groupie i don't malign even like absolutely not and i don't even really malign like necessarily rock stars who were took advantage like, yeah, took advantage of like the women who were just like absolutely not. Like if it's, like, if it is a consensual, agreed upon deal where it's like I'm back here because I want to fuck you. If it's all consensual, absolutely great. go for Super. it. But you don't have to turn it into like some like what the fuck are you gay? You gay? You fuck farm animals? Why don't you want Whoa. this pussy? Not everyone wants to just do because that. they are not trying to mack it and fuck every single woman that they run into at every show doesn't mean you have to find a reason why they're not doing it. Maybe it's because 
they're just not a fucking asshole like you. Yeah. Maybe it's just because they like they're fine not doing that. Like, Maybe that's not something they wanted. To- okay. First of all, Neil would never. He would. I no. That can, man would can never. You, can you never. even imagine no. that happening? Absolutely not. Like unlike the guys in Kiss, they had morals. Yeah. Alex was in a committed relationship with his girlfriend, Charlene. Okay. And together, they had their first son, Justin, when Alex was only 17. Holy shit. So he already had a family. And Getty was with his soon-to-be wife, Nancy Young. And Neil had met and settled down with his girlfriend, Jackie Taylor. So you're saying they didn't want to cheat on their significant others? An insane concept, I know. I don't know. I'm pretty sure, like, you're morally obligated to like, cheat that's, on them. That's as like a man in the contract, the right? Yeah. Yeah. They must be gay. They must be. Or, you know what? They're fucking goats. Yeah. Fuck off, Gene Simmons. Yeah. So basically, Gene Simmons can get fucked. Yeah. Yeah. And he did a lot. Good for him. But also, like, women, you could have done better. You yeah. could have just sat backstage and had a, like a beer with Getty and Alex, probably not Neil, which is fine, and just like yeah, you could have nice just conversation, like, you know, like driven around and like had shenanigans and drank at a bar and then gotten breakfast at a twenty four hour diner at four o'clock in the morning. Been like, hey, can we hang out, drink some beers, talk about Lord of the Rings? But can we do that? Because yeah. that's what I want to do with Rush. I would also make out with Getty Lee. <laughs> I'm not lying. I'd make out with Getty Lee. I would have made out with Alex or Neil. So, yeah. All right. We could have made this work. We could have done this. We were born in the wrong area. (laughs) The wrong area and the wrong era. Yes. Bit of both. (laughs) Yeah, bit of both. So, these crazy-ass tour times were the getting-to-know-you period. Alex and Getty thought Neil was totally weird and read way too many books. (laughs) And eventually they cracked Neil's hard outer shell and the innate goofiness of all three of them blended together seamlessly. Ah, the balls. It was the balls. It was the the goat. (laughs) I bet. The balls on that goat. In the meantime, Alex and Getty noticed Neil really liked to read a lot of books. Yeah. They figured maybe all that literary nonsense means he'd be good at writing lyrics. Yeah. And asked him if he'd want to take a crack at it. Neil said sure. And wow, did they get way more than they bargained for. <laughs> He's going to come back with like a song or two. Oh, no, that's it. No. He slaps a composition mm. notebook. I filled this in one <laughs> night. Please read every song. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Neil would scribble down lyrics while they were on tour, taking his vast knowledge of literature, history, and fantasy and using it as inspiration. Oh. What came out of that was dense. I believe it. I wouldn't even say that Neil writes lyrics. He writes short stories that are put to music. But considering the prog rock path they were going down, dense lyrics full of imagery was what they needed. Mm-hmm. By the time they were done touring, their debut album had reached number 105 on the Billboard 200 chart. Not bad for a debut. Not a bad standing, but if Mercury expected them to record a similar sounding follow-up, they were wrong. Oh. <laughs> Whereas the first album garnered many comparisons to Led Zeppelin, Fly by Night declared a definitive shift from hard-hitting rock 
to the intricate and complicated compositions of prog rock. And it's fabulous. It's really good. Rush's second album, Fly By Night, was released on February 15th, 1975, and a lot of people felt that it kind of came out of left field. There were some key differences between their first and second albums. First, Getty's vocals. Mm. He was still doing his high-energy, high-pitched vocals, but he kind of knocked it down a notch or two. Okay. Much less Robert Plant and much more quintessential Getty. All right. Yeah. Next, lyrics. With the exception of a couple songs that were written pre-paired, Neil wrote all of the lyrics, and as I mentioned before, they were dense. Nice. Instead of, I'm running here, I'm running there, I'm looking for a girl, which was literally a lyric from their first album. (laughs) It was, ten score years ago, defeat the kingly foe, a wondrous dream came into being, tame the trackless waste, no virgin left chaste, all shining eyes but never seeing, which was from beneath, between, and behind. Okay. Big difference. <laughs> Big difference. Big difference. I'm over here. I'm over there. I'm over here. I'm over there. <laughs> Looking for ladies. <laughs> this is the first time we see Rush lyrics that reference Ayn Rand. Oh. Which is why I was telling you we were discussing Ayn Rand before randomly. Not Very randomly. totally a coincidence. And I was like, oh, we're going to talk about this. Because I don't know much about Ayn Rand. I don't really either. I just know that she is a problematic person. I don't think she is a problematic person. Her, I think her, she writing, a... her writing ended up becoming problematic yeah. just because of, you know. Misinterpretation? No, it's not no, misinterpretation. It, it wasn't misinterpretation. It was a lot of people reading her stuff 40 year, 40, 50 years after she wrote it and being like, but this doesn't really apply anymore and it's right. kind of problematic. Well, it's very much about individualism. Yes. Uh, she created objectivism. Yes. And that is not a great way to live societally because you don't give a fuck about anybody but yourself. Exactly. Which isn't great. That is exactly the problem. I did and it. It is... <laughs> Her writings can be very helpful to somebody who is struggling trying to find who they are yes but it could also turn into very conservative views where like only you matter and the public at large does not matter and therefore the public at large does not does not deserve universal health care or really just any general necessities or or uh, shelter or clothing or like basically homeless people don't deserve anything and they deserve to die because they can't provide for themselves. I feel like you went down a really deep dive, but you're not wrong. I did. I kind of had to just to fucking understand all of this. Yeah, I'm so I'm curious about Neil Peart's interest in Anne Rand. Yeah, so he was really into her books in the mid 70s. Thankfully, he did not identify with them as he got older. Okay. But he was very interested in her ideas on individualism and objectivism. And the song Anthem gets its inspiration from her book of the same name. Oh, I'm going to go into a deep dive. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he was one of those people who read 
you know, the fountainhead and Atlas shrugged and was very much like, yes, individualism matters to me. because, And I think that's because maybe he didn't really know who he was as a person. I think there is a... There is a time in your life where you are growing as a person where that type of... It can be helpful. Correct. Yeah. That's... But, like, there is also, like, you can take... Like you said, you can take it too far. Right. And thankfully, Neil did not take it too far. He was like, yeah, no, I've outgrown this. But, like, I guess teenage men could read this and really identify with it. And some can learn from it and others can become incels because of it yes and thankfully neil did not do that yes (laughs) we're also treated to neil's love of fantasy with the song rivendell which obviously references lord of the rings and also makes me want to jerk myself off hell yeah um but yeah, like this is the first instance we get of Neil being like super into fantasy and it's like, yeah, this is your nerdy shit coming out and I am here for it. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For I sure. just I am just so like fucking chuffed that Neil's first foray into fantasy lyrics has to do with Lord of the Fucking Rings. Because of course they do. Like if you're fucking gonna write about fantasy murder my lady parts, I love it. But yeah, if you're gonna write about fantasy it has to be lord Lord of the the rings Rings. like seriously it's it's a good place to start (laughs) absolutely and it's a good place to continue and it's a good place to just be there for the rest of your life and also end on it yeah i'm okay with all of this yeah yep so he's not just talking about philosophy but also writes about the important things like hobbits and elves hell yeah and then there's the run times oh yeah Fly by Night is the first time we see Rush songs with multiple acts. Clocking in at 8 minutes and 37 seconds, Bytor and the Snow Dog was their longest song to date. Mm. That's not to say it was their longest song, period, no. because they had two seven-minute-plus songs on their first album. Right. But this was the first one that wasn't just a jam session. But it told a story through the lyrics and the music mm-hmm. through a series of acts. Oh, yeah. it that, that song goes places. And it's fucking tits, man. It is, though. But in 1975, Bytor and the Snow Dog was a marvel of modern songwriting. I believe it. It was eight minutes, but it never lost your attention. Right. Even at this early stage, these guys were such masters of their instruments and such captivating storytellers that you couldn't wait to hear what came in the next minute. Right. And in case anyone wants to know, Bytor and the Snow Dog are real dogs. Oh. Owned by their manager, Ray Daniels. Oh, shut up. That's adorable. A lighting guy gave them the nicknames Biter and the Snow Dog. And on some night where they smoked too much weed and thought it was hilarious... Neil came up with a mythology based on these two dogs, and it became this song. All right. The fact that he came up with a mythology for his manager's dogs tells you all you need to know about this dude. Exactly. And then Billy Corgan stole a riff and used it to open Cherub Rock. Yeah. So, like... Go to the middle of Bytor and the Snow Dog. Around, I think, minute four, I think. Yeah, the middle. (laughs) (laughs) It's either minute three or minute four. Um, you can hear 
the riff that Billy Corgan literally fucking stole, complete, complete with the drum rolls to open Cherub Rock. Yep. So the next time you fire up Siamese Dream, just know that you're listening to stolen Rush riffs. Yeah. So Mercury released Fly By Night, but they were really skeptical about it. I can understand to an extent. They didn't feel like Rush was developing in the way that they wanted them to. They weren't abiding by the rules of traditional rock and roll. How dare you? How dare you? The critics agreed, saying the album was pretentious, dorky, just a bunch of noise with dumb song names, etc., etc. And uh, fuck you. Fuck you. And also fuck you and uh, get fucked. Yeah. How about that? Don't forget about the get fucked part. Yeah. But the fans loved it. It reached number nine in Canada and the title track cracked the top 100 in the U.S., they also won a Juno Award for Most Promising Group after its release. And if Fuck you don't yeah. know, a Juno Award is the equivalent of a Grammy, which currently mm-hmm. means nothing, but back then kind of meant something. Yeah. If Mercury wasn't convinced that they were on the right path after Fly By Night's release, they definitely were not ready for Caress of Steel. Oh, I don't think I was ready for Caress of Steel. I'm always ready for a Caress of Peter Steel. Ah, uh, mm, <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> released on september 24th 1975 only seven months after fly by night yeah right wait this album made it clear that rush were no longer interested in making mainstream rock while the first side has four songs one of which is 12 and a half minutes long wow which is the necromancer oh okay. side two consists solely of one 20 minute song the fountain of lemneth yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that one real good. Mm-hmm. Mm. I know that one done real good. <laughs> Obviously, Mercury was like, how the fuck are we going to get a single out of this? Why the fuck is there a 20 minute song taking up half the album? To which Getty, Alex and Neil said, who fucking cares? We fucking love it. This is what we wanted. This is what you're getting. You can uh, proudly eat our dicks. You can uh, suck my nuts and uh, go fuck yourselves, basically. All right. In a way, Mercury was right because Caress of Steel did not do well. Yeah. You need at least like that one jam. Yeah, but I kind of feel like it was probably at least partly Mercury's fault because Mm. they didn't like the album to begin with so and didn't, didn't really want to release it, release it, so they probably didn't put any money into marketing it. Yeah, you're probably right. Because that's what fucking record companies do. Sounds about right. It was universally panned. People did not get the concepts behind the songs or the long run times, and sales were poor. Mm. Whereas Fly By Night had sold 110,000 copies in its first six months, Caress of Steel only sold 40,000 in the same amount of time. Therefore, it was considered a failure by the record company. But I kind of feel like that's partially their fault. Yeah, maybe like just rush that up. Because of poor album sales, attendance at their shows was also way down. They were booked on much smaller tours, playing what Neil called backwater clubs. Oh, no. And barely filling those up. They went from opening for some of the biggest bands in rock to playing tiny, shitty clubs again. Yeah. They even had to open for Ted Nugent. No! And they, like, kind of bonded with Ted Nugent because he was trying to break out at the same time. And, like, 
nobody was into Ted Nugent. And then like, but like then Ted Nugent got big and these guys were like, I don't know. I fucking hate Ted Nugent. He can suck my (laughs) fucking dick. (laughs) They were really, really discouraged to a point where everyone thought that was the end of the band and they were not going to survive another tour. But they still had a little juice left in that little bottle of Fruitopia rolling around <laughs> at the bottom of the tour van. Nice. <laughs> just a little bit. Just that warm little puddle of Fruitopia. Thankfully, it was there. the red Fruitopia, which yeah. is probably the most tolerable. Probably. The tolerable one when you leave that bottle in the van all day mm-hmm. and you're really thirsty and you just need like a, a drop just of a little something. droplet. They had just that little bit of Fruitopia in the bottom of the tour van. And they went back into the studio for one last hurrah. And that is where we're going to leave it until next time. One last hurrah. Or so they think. Or so they thought. (laughs) Ooh, cliffhanger. Yes, cliffhanger. Oh, man. That was a lot. That's a lot of Rush history when we've only gotten to 1975. <laughs> yo, yo, kids, there's like a lot more to Rush. And we were like, oh, this is going to be a two part. No, I think no. it might be a three parter. But I've been enjoying it thus far. Because it's a great story it and is Rush is story. great and all these guys are fucking delightful. Hey, how y'all feeling about Rush yet? How you feeling? You like them? Baby, how you feeling? Can we? Feeling like Rush. <laughs> feeling Rush as hell. Hell Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We hope that you are learning and enjoying learning about Rush. You should be, because they are worthy of your your ears and your attention. Seriously. And they're not as bad as everybody seems to fucking think they are. They're Seriously. fucking wonderful. And they put so much work into their music, and we should appreciate it just for that. It's really just because like, Ashley hates Gene Simmons and Ted Nugent. I fucking hate both of them. But also, I kind of... I kind of, you know, relate everybody else's distaste for for Rush to my relationship with Bjork. Oh. Or at least how I feel like people who don't like Rush should relate their relationship to Rush like I do with Bjork. Okay. If that makes any fucking sense. I know so like how sense. like you're like, I don't necessarily really yeah. listen to Bjork, I but I understand I her influence. particularly care for Bjork, excuse me, for Bjork. Bjork's music. It's not something that I want to sit down and listen to because mm-hmm. it's just, I just can't vibe with it. But I absolutely appreciate her musicianship. Mm. I appreciate her lyrics, her compositions everything i appreciate everything that she does and who she is as a musician and artist even if i don't particularly like her music if people don't like rush fine but you need to appreciate their musicianship well good news for me i like and appreciate both of them me too so so we're on the right side i'm on the right side of this (laughs) i mean like y'all can go fuck yourselves they're both great exactly yeah all right so if Actually, we do have an episode on Bjork, if you're interested in that. We have other episodes, too, if you're new to checking us out, even though we're going to end soon. But why not? <laughs> you know what? Check us out. Who knows what's happening? Even if you discover us now. Yeah, we still got other we episodes We have a massive backlog of almost 200 episodes yeah. that you can check out. So. Yep. Rockcandypodcast.com. And you can also get links to our social medias or drop us an email if you so choose to want to do yeah, that. Yeah, we're going to keep all that stuff open even after we're done with the podcast. Yeah. So if you want to drop us a line, you are more than welcome to. 
Questions, we, comments, anything you want to like clarify begging with us, us to fine. come back because you just love us so much. Oh my god, we're so great. <laughs> we're okay or just a really funny ball joke That'd yeah actually great. honestly you got funny ball jokes send them our way you know we're we'll also gonna yes. keep up our merch uh store so yeah. if you do so want to buy merch please do so yeah even if you don't even have to rush to buy it now <laughs> rush. um you can buy it later because we're gonna keep it up but yeah it's a tea public that. it's tea public we'll just look for rock candy mm, yeah. podcast yeah um right, we cool. are going to shut down the Patreon the Patreon next month. next month we will do um a Patreon bonus episode will be coming out soon bonus later episode. this week. There are two people that signed up for our oh Patreon. Oh my gosh, that's right. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for doing that. So yay to Alejandro and Chris. Yeah. Thank, thank you so you. much for signing up for that shit. You will be getting swag soon. Swag, swag, swag. Swag, swag, swag. And you'll get access to all of our previous Patreon episodes and the new one coming out this month. Exactly. So, so listen to it. Yeah. Double double time. Right double quick. Because I don't know if you have access to it after we stop. I think you don't. should. I you, should? you should? I can't I'll, remember. I'll I don't check. know. We'll have to. Du- we'll double check that for you. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Come on in next week for part two of Rush. And until then, party mm. on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. And party on, you crazy kids out there.